It's my privilege to introduce uh, Reverend Richard Lee, who's the Director of Church Mobilization with the International Justice Mission in this area. Um, he's been a local pastor in Northern Jersey for quite a long time, so it totally makes sense that he serves in that capacity of equipping, challenging, just uh, spurring the local church to uh, live out um, biblical justice in our local communities and beyond internationally. Another thing on that I'm always encouraged, Pastor Richard, before uh, he took the position with the IJM, uh, he's been kind of leading a group of us pastors, kind of gathering us and so that we meet together, spur each other on, challenging each other from different perspectives, asking each other the hard questions for both for accountability's sake, as well as just stretching our uh, minds and our lives as, you know, people of God in ministry. So I'm always encouraged and um, glad that he's still serving the local church in that small group capacity, as well as as he continues to serve the larger church uh, through IJM. So I want to invite Pastor Richard to come. Um, join me as we pray for our pastor friend here. And um, Lord Jesus, we thank you for... Uh, Pastor Richard, bring him here. Thank you for the calling you've placed in the larger church. Um, you've situated him in a perfect place to um, equip, challenge, because he knows what it's like. And God, as he shares your heart to us here and his journey and his growth and what you've been teaching him, Lord, would you use him to impart to us and continue to challenge us and spur us to live out your gospel truth in our local areas, wherever we're placed here in Bergen County and beyond for your glory as we grow deeper in understanding of justice that you have fulfilled through your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, bless his lips and Lord, open our hearts and uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. Uh, thanks for the introduction, Paul, and for Eugene, thank you uh, for the invitation, and Ben, thank you for this morning, and Greg, I'm sure this afternoon is going to be great. Um, glad you guys are here. Um, I want to just ask you, just to start off, just to think about when you became a Christian. Maybe that wasn't a defined moment, but, but when was the moment that you knew you were a Christian? Sort of. Get a date in mind, get a season in mind, get a time, an event in mind. Okay, so now when was the moment, this is a new moment, when was the moment that you knew that evangelism was something that you did as a Christian? When was that moment? A little bit harder question, isn't it? Right? In fact, some of you are thinking, I don't know, maybe this afternoon, you know, I mean, like, I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out. But here's the thing, right? I think we have done a disservice to ourselves as Christians because we have made the gospel about us receiving salvation, right? We receive God's grace. We receive redemption. We receive restoration. But the Bible is actually pretty clear that we are saved to save. 
We are redeemed to redeem. Now understand, we're not the ones who save. We're not the ones who redeem. Jesus is those things. We understand what I'm saying, but it just doesn't work when I preach it, right? So we are saved to save. We are redeemed to redeem. We are restored to be agents of restoration. 2 Corinthians 15, right? This is where, the 2 Corinthians 5, this is what God asks us to do. And so it's interesting that we could probably all remember a time or an event or a season where we were saved, and yet the time where we were convinced that we then had to go out and save other people has not become as locked into our brains. I was fortunate enough to have a situation when I was growing up where that actually sort of did get in, emboldened into my, my, my mindset. It was sort of ingrained. I was at a retreat um, when I was 12 um, in 19-something. And, um, and uh, I, I remember it was just the most random conversation. This guy came in. And I'm pretty sure he was part of a cult because he started telling us all these things. Jesus is coming back, you know, like on a certain day. So, yeah, I mean, he was definitely part of a cult, right? So, like, I don't know if I'm going to see this guy in heaven, right? <laughs> I just don't know. Or I don't know whether he believed in Jesus or, like, you know, whatever. But anyway, this guy came in, and I just remember distinctly at that moment he left and I was sitting around with my, these other 12-year-olds, and we had just become Christians in our churches and stuff like that. And I remember sitting around, and this one guy came, and he, and he said, Jesus is coming back. And I just remember distinctly, man, I got to tell other people about Christ. Now, understand that as a 12-year-old, I was thinking, because maybe Jesus is coming back and, you know, doing all these things on this particular date. But obviously, Jesus didn't come back in 1992 or 1989 or whatever it was. But... I remembered at that moment, hey, I have a responsibility to go and tell people about this. So what I want to do is I just want to share with you guys a little bit of sort of a biblical foundation, but then also sort of some, some ways that we can think about through this idea of evangelism. Um, and, and I'll sort of dovetail into a little bit about what I do uh, with my organization. I've, I've spoken here before uh, about my organization, and so I hope that this is not redundant for any of you um, during that part. February 10th, 2011 is probably not a date that is significant to you, but I bet that there's a good number of people here who remember where they were Friday night, 2011, February 10th, and that is because that is when Jeremy Lin played the Lakers, right? 2011, Linsanity, right? I mean, I, I know, not probably not everyone, but he comes onto the scene, he starts, and he starts putting up these crazy numbers for the Knicks, and everybody's like, what? Who is this guy? Like, Tim Keller talked about this guy. Like, it was just insane, right? He was all over the news, and then it comes up to the Friday night primetime game against the Lakers, and they interviewed Kobe, and they were like, Kobe, what do you think of Jeremy Lin? And do you guys remember what Kobe said? Kobe was just like, who's that? Who's Jeremy Lin? You're like, oh, well, he's putting up big numbers for the Knicks, and you're playing him tomorrow. You know, what do you think? I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not thinking about Jeremy Lin. And then Kobe drops 38 points, and the Knicks beat the Lakers, and Kobe only put up 34. And if you watch the Lin Sanity uh, documentary on Netflix, <laughs> which I have, 
um, he actually says that he was, he, everything in him just wanted to go into that post-game press conference and be like, man, who's Kobe? Right? Now, here's the thing. There's, uh, I, you may not feel this, okay, but as a Korean-American Asian man, I felt this. I knew, you guys don't know where you were February 10th of 2011. I know where I was. And here's the thing. I'm not Jeremy Lin. I'm not 6'3", Brooklyn Nets point guard, right? I'm not Harvard basketball D1 scholar. That's not me, right? I'm not him. I'm not even Chinese. I'm not even Taiwanese, right? I'm, I'm Korean, and, and even that, like, barely. Like, I was born here. I don't even speak Korean. Like, I mean... But man, Jeremy Lin, that's my boy. You know, I got the t-shirt, I got the foam finger. You know, like, I... why? Because there's something that I associate with him that resonates with me. And in this case, it's really just because he's not white or black or Latino. And it's like, all right, close enough. Yeah, that's my boy. Now, here's the thing. We go to the first slide. This is, this is a question that I want us to answer. And this is the understanding of why do we evangelize? And the answer is our identity. Our identity. See, everything we do is a result, is a reflection of our identity. Okay? Now, some of you guys don't know who I am. And so all you see is, well, you're a Korean guy. Right? In his 30s. I, I totally lied. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. All right. You're a Korean guy over 30. We'll say. We'll say. Now, listen. Everything I do for the next hour is a reflection of that. Now, you guys know many Korean uh, men in their 40s, and that's fine. So probably my, my reflection of that is not going to make a big influence on you. But if you brought someone who's never met a Korean man in his 40s and sat here for an hour, they'd be like, oh, Korean men in their 40s like to talk a lot. And, you know, they make silly jokes and whatever. Like, you know, I mean, and everything that I do is a reflection of that. Now, I used to, starting from my college days, I used to sort of obsess about this, this sort of reflection thing, right? And I call it identity buckets. Right? So everything that I do is a reflection of my identity. Everything I'm doing right now, you are putting into a bucket of men. Oh, men like to talk about basketball. Right? I, you're putting into a reflection of Korean and in people born in the 70s. Right? And as you get to know me more, you realize that I'm, I'm married. I have children. I, you know, I'm a pastor. And so everything I do becomes a reflection of everything that you know about me. And so all of those things go get put into buckets. The reason why I care about Jeremy Lin is because, man, we got one bucket. And we are both Asian men. And we play basketball. Some to varying degrees of excellence. <laughs> but we are Asian men that play basketball. And, man, we got, we got those buckets and, like, that's my boy. But that's the interesting thing. Is everything as we do is a reflection of who we are. 
then the more that you realize, well, you know, you're a Christian, then it's like, oh, well, you know what? It's not just about being a Korean man in his 40s who is a father and is, you know, married. It, it's, oh, as a, as, a, as a Christian. And so that's the bucket that I want to challenge us with, is understanding that everything you do um, is a reflection and gets put into that bucket. Now, you guys work, and when you guys are at your work, what you do, how you behave, what time you arrive, what time you leave, what sort of work that you produce is a reflection of all of the things that you identify yourself with. You're a Korean, you're a woman, you're in your 20s or your 30s, you're married, you're single, you're whatever it is. But also, if your coworkers know that you're a Christian, then everything you do gets put in that bucket. It's a reflection of who you are. Now, this is not just like, you know, some sort of guilt-inducing principle. It's actually found in Scripture. And so I want to look at the Scripture in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. A little hard to read. I'll read it for you. It says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, I heard this, this verse growing up, this passage growing up all the time. And it was always, you know, okay, ugh. I got to be salt and I got to be light, right? I got to be salt, I got to be light. And then I was reading the scriptures one day and I realized, man, I got it completely wrong. There's nothing in that passage that says be salt and be light. Nothing. What the passage says is you are salt. You are light. That's who you are. That's your identity. As a Christian, you are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. There is no command there. And so my whole life, I was like, oh, God, I'm going to be light. I'm going to be salt, you know, like... And I was spending all this energy trying to become and obey some command that is not even in the Bible. We, we actually deal with some like level, like low-lying level of anxiety, like over the fact that, oh, I'm just not, I'm just not light enough. I'm not salty enough. Like, oh, you know, like we deal with this anxiety, right? I mean... We may not put it those terms, but we deal with that issue. Like, oh, like what Ben was talking about, like, I have the sin issue. I just, you know, or I'm not. But the identity in verse 13 and verse 14 is irrelevant of your action. When you become a Christian, you are salt. You are light. Right? So we're getting that. It's your identity. It's who you are. Now, the interesting thing is that there is a command in that verse. In that passage. What is the command? Say it like you mean it. Are you 
What is it? Let your light shine. Let your light shine. Not even shine your light, right? It's not like turn on your light. It's let your light shine, which is about as passive a command as possible. It's just kind of like be yourself. You are light, so let it shine, right? That's all it is. And so the Bible is saying basically you're salt of the earth like people, you know, and light of the world, people need to, and then it's just like go, right? That's the command. And so this command that we have been weighing ourselves down as like Christians, we're like, oh, I just need to be light of the world. That's not the command. The command is, oh, yeah, yeah, you're light of the world. Like, I've, I've transformed you. I'm now going to use you. And so, go, let your light shine. Oh, well, that's actually a lot more freeing. That's actually a lot more uh, um, edifying. That's actually more encouraging that God has already placed in me this identity. And now my command, my obedience actually is just let your light shine. And so, why do we evangelize? It's because of who we are in Christ. Everything we do is a reflection of that. Every action that you take is a reflection of that. Every word that you say, like Ben challenged us, every word that you say, that you verbalize, is a reflection because it goes into a bucket. Now, some of you are thinking, well... That's good because my coworkers don't know that I'm Christian. So they don't have that bucket. <laughs> Two things. One, you're still putting buckets in for Korean women in their 20s or, you know, Asian men or whatever. Like, you know, there's still buckets that are going on. So, you know, still be mindful of that. But the second thing is, why not? Why don't your coworkers know that you're a Christian? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, he just put up the slide, right? I mean, there's all these obstacles. Like, I mean, yes, yes, those are like, yes, those are one, two, three for me. Like, that's why I don't, it's none of my business. It's none of, none of their business. They don't need to know that. Well, here's the thing. This is how coworkers learn that you're a Christian. Hey, how was your weekend? Oh, it's good. Yeah, you know, just kind of hang out with my friends, uh, watch some Netflix, and uh, yeah, just chilled. No big. Right? That's typically how we answer. Hey, how was your weekend? Oh, it was good. You know, just kind of chilled. Hung out with some friends. Went out to dinner. Um, and then went to church. And then, you know, we just hung out. We went to lunch with a bunch of my friends. Do you think your coworker is going to be like, hold everything? <laughs> you did not tell me that you're... You know what they're going to say? Cool. That's it. And you know what? You just let them know that you're a Christian. And why would you do that? Why would you let them know that you're a Christian? So that you can fill their bucket. So that you could say, now everything that I do, every time that I stay in the break room and I clean it up a little bit, it doesn't just go into the Richard bucket. It goes into the Christian bucket as well. So you see, it's very simple to tell your coworkers that you're Christian. How was your weekend? It was good. 
I hung out with some church friends, and you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's very simple. And then you get a bucket that you can then fill up, okay? So part of understanding who we are as, as Christians is understanding that we have the power to let our light shine. Now, you guys have the opportunity to sort of control who knows what about you. Um, these gentlemen and Eugene and Paul, we don't always get that choice. When we sit next to someone on a plane and they say, so what do you do? I'm a social entrepreneur who, you know, I'm a pastor. Oh, right? And so we have this sort of like label that gets stuck on us. And then we have to sort of like almost backtrack and unpack all of that. No, 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 no. Don't be, a, don't be alarmed, right? I'm a good pastor or, you know, I'm a friendly pastor. I don't know, right? And so understand that our identity is wrapped up into our job and into our profession. But you guys have actually have the opportunity to be able to introduce that in healthy and non-threatening ways in your workplace. Which is, I don't know if you caught what Ben said. Ben, one of the, one of the most important things that Ben said was that, that that's not Eugene's job. Eugene's job is not to convert everyone. That you're thinking, oh, if I just bring him to church, Eugene will convert him. Actually, no. The biblical example is that, that Eugene, Eugene's job is to equip all of you to then go out and equip the people and, and, and preach the gospel to those people, right? It's Ephesians 4. That's actually what, how that sort of dynamic works, which transitions into our uh, second thing, which is where do we evangelize? We evangelize into our community. So we've talked about our identity, and now we're talking about our community. It's interesting. If you look um, in, um, Ben talked about Mark, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about Luke. Um, you can go ahead and put that up. Did you know that the author of Luke was also the author of Acts? Did you know that? Um, did you know that the author of Luke and Acts actually wrote that as a two-part story? Maybe, dare I say, the first sequel in history? History. Right? The first sequel, right? He wrote Luke as the gospel account of Jesus, and then he wrote Acts as sort of like the, the, the postlude, right? The, 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 the epilogue, the what happens afterwards. Now, there's something that is a literary device that happens in Luke that is very interesting. It's called the travel narrative. Now, if you look at these passages in the, at the top, and don't look at them now, but it, it, it says... Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem and made his way towards Jerusalem. And Luke 9, 51 and 53 and 13, 22 and 30, all these verses start out with saying Jesus made and on his way to Jerusalem and on his way to Jerusalem and on his way to Jerusalem. So as Luke is writing this story, he's basically saying Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And then he does all these things, and then Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. And so the reason why I have a bullseye on there, right, is because we think of this as, as Jesus sort of reaching his target. He's headed towards Jerusalem. And so the, the Luke frames the, the gospel, 
the narrative around all of these different things that he does, the miracles and the parables and all of those things, he frames it on Jesus' trip to Jerusalem. Now, some of you guys are going, this is fascinatingly boring. Jesus is getting towards Jerusalem. Now, what happens in Jerusalem? The cross, right? Betrayal, arrest, the cross, that's what happens in Jerusalem. And so Luke's narrative is we need to get to Jerusalem. We need to get to the bullseye. And then he gets there, and then he dies. And then the story transitions to Acts. And what happens in Acts? Well, it says in Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 is actually when the disciples are looking up at the resurrected Jesus, right? Or, I mean, no, that, that's the end of Luke. But um, Acts 1 is, sorry, Acts 1 is the promise of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples as they are mourning the death of their Savior. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem and he's headed towards Jerusalem and they're like, this is, we're going to Jerusalem and we get to Jerusalem and then he dies. The disciples are like, well, what now? Right? How do we do this? Right? And Jesus is resurrected and so they're saying, what now? And then it says, the Holy Spirit will come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what happens is this Acts 1-8 is a pivot, right? You see Jerusalem in there. They're in Jerusalem. And so disciples, having followed Jesus to the bullseye and seeing Jesus die and be resurrected, then it transitions and it says, now the Holy Spirit will take you from Jerusalem to the surrounding areas, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, so you see, it's a, it's a script flipping, right? Jesus flips the script on the disciples. We're going, come on, we're going to Jerusalem, we're going to Jerusalem, we're going to Jerusalem. Boom, we get to Jerusalem. Jesus dies, he's resurrected. And then God, in Acts 1-8, flips the script, and he says, now, go. And actually, if you look at Acts, Acts is all about going from Jerusalem on these missionary trips. These are the four missionary trips of Paul going from Jerusalem all the way out to the ends of the earth. In fact, when it says, you will be my witnesses in, Judea, uh, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, it's actually, how, it's actually an outline of Acts. It talks about the ministry in Jerusalem, and then it talks about Judea and Samaria, and then it talks about the ends of the earth. So this is the, again, what are we talking about? What I'm saying is Jesus' plan for evangelism all along was get people to the cross, and then send them out. You see, we have a way, those of us who are Christian here, and I'm going to assume that if you're in an evangelism conference on a Saturday that you paid to be here, you're already a Christian. So all of us Christians here, have been brought to the bullseye of the cross, and now Jesus says to us, now go out. Be sent out. You see, we have a mentality that if we just bring people in to the church so that we can sit down and hear a great Easter message from Eugene, that would be, I'm doing evangelism. That's the work of evangelism. Invite my friend. 
But see, that's actually not what church is for. It's great when it happens, and certainly we should invite our friends to church because it's bringing them closer to the bullseye. But understand this. When you come to church, you're being recharged, reminded, rejuvenated in the gospel to be sent out there. To be sent out to your homes and to your schools and to your workplaces and to your neighborhoods. And that's the gospel. The gospel was come to the bullseye and then be sent out. Now, look at Acts 1.8. You will, be, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, isn't it interesting if the, if the goal was that you will be sent to the ends of the earth, right? That he didn't just say, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's not what he says. What does he say, Paul? It's right up there on the screen. Okay, um, you will be my witnesses where? It's, come on. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Which is interesting because at last I checked, Jerusalem is part of the earth. Judea, Samaria, part of the earth. And so it very easily could have been you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Why do you think he says it this way? They're in Jerusalem. And the surrounding region is Judea and Samaria. And the ends of the earth is at the ends of the earth. So understand this. God's call to you is to be a witness for Christ in Paramus. At your school, Jessica. I'm sorry. He picked on you. I'm just piling on. Wherever you work, whatever office you work, whatever school you, you know, attend, whatever home you live in, that's where you're called to be a witness. And guess what? The neighborhood, the community as well. And guess what? To the ends of the earth. But there's, a, there's almost this, this sense of like, well... I'm going to be a witness to the ends of the earth. I'm going to go to Africa. Right? I'm going to go on that missions trip. Sign me up. Here I am, Lord. Right? I would love for a pastor just to be like, we are all going to go on a missions trip this week. You guys have opted in. We're signing you up. Um, and it's free. And uh, it's going to happen this week. And it's exactly where you live. People would be like, say, what? But everything we do, again, talking about that, those identity, right? Our identity and our community. So where do we evangelize? It's wherever we find ourselves to be. So my challenge to you is find out a way to be part of your community, wherever you live. One of the ways that I've done that is I've uh, coached my son uh, in his sports. Um, if any of you have children or one day... Uh, fortunate enough to be able to have children, um, and they will become part of the school system. And that school system is, is, is a community. It's a, it's, it is 
the community in your neighborhood. And there are ways for you to be able to have a bucket with all of the people in your community through how you volunteer, you know, PTA car washes, meetings, you know, coaching, serving, whatever it is. Be part of that community and understand that that's how God has uh, brought you and called you. The interesting thing is that if you look at the, the book of Acts, that as people have gone from that bullseye out into the marketplace, it's actually uh, all of the miracles that take place in Acts are not in Jerusalem. They're all outside of Jerusalem because it's this extension of Jesus calling people out. And so all of the miracles in Acts take place outside of the church, right, where Jerusalem is, the, real, the holy place, right? All of them take out place outside except for one. The one miracle, I should say the one miraculous thing that happens is when the people come to church and um, they bring their offering, but then they, they keep some from themselves, and then God strikes them dead. You guys know, remember that story, right, in Acts? Um, yeah, well, so, yeah, that one happened in Jerusalem. We don't like to talk about that one. Um, but all of the miracles that happen, except for that, happen outside of Jerusalem. And so understand this, your Christianity, your evangelism is not just simply to come and attend and to bring. It's actually to come, be equipped here, be rejuvenated, restored, raise your hands and worship, be encouraged by the message and, and pray in community and, and be encouraged in community so that you can then be sent out Monday morning. Till Saturday, and then, man, oh, that was that's a that's a rough week, man. Just like filling up that Christian bucket in my workplace and in my home, and maybe you live with like your parents, and maybe that's a difficult task. Like, and, and that could be tiring, right? And so by Saturday, you're like, man, I just need a rest. Where can I go to rest in God? <gasps> Church on Sunday. And so you rest and you restore and you rejuvenate and then you go out again on Monday. That's actually the cycle. The cycle that we actually believe is, I'm going to live however the heck I want on Monday and Friday and every day. And then right about Saturday night, just start feeling a little bit guilty for all the sins you committed all during the week. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to go to Sunday and I'm going to start feeling better about myself. And I'm going to lift my hands in worship. And then, you know, that's it. Check. And then Monday to Saturday, you live however you want. Sunday, check. That's actually the, exactly the wrong way that we should be living. Sunday is to come to rejuvenate and to be challenged and sent out to go live your life out there. So come to the bullseye and then go sent, be sent out from there. Any questions so far about anything we've said? So, our identity, which is why we evangelize them, is because who we are. And then our community, which is where we evangelize, is wherever we are. The third thing about uh, evangelism is our responsibility. Our responsibility in evangelism is this issue of sort of charity and mercy and justice. That's why I have the scales there. The scales of justice. 
And this is sort of uh, some, some area that I'm going to be, I'm going to be completely honest, is some area that I'm learning myself in my own spiritual life. Um, as I have uh, come on staff at International Justice Mission, which is a human rights organization that does anti-slavery work, um, I, have, I have been challenged and I have been reminded and, and encouraged that, that this issue of justice needs to be part of our discipleship. Um, I'm going to put up a, a, a verse for you here in Isaiah 58, which says, let me just give you a little bit of, of context here. Isaiah 58, the Israelites are sort of complaining to God. God, I, I, you know, we do everything you ask, right? We're, we're doing, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, we do the Bible studies. You know, we, we, we listen to the sermons. I even sit in the front. I take notes. I lift my hands in worship. Uh, I come on the Saturday, you know, evangelism conference. Like, I mean, I even, I paid at the door, you know, I mean, like, I do everything you ask me to do. Why are you far away from us? Why don't I feel your presence in our, in, in my life? And this is God's response to you, to them. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Well, that's challenging. Jesus, I just don't feel close to you anymore. You know, when I open up the Bible, when I bow my head to pray, I just don't feel that intimacy any longer. Isaiah 58 says, what are you doing about injustice? What are you doing about the poor? What are you doing about the naked? What are you doing about the people that are on the fringes of the community? Wow, that's certainly part of the discipleship that I think has been under-preached, under-challenged, under-educated to me, certainly in my uh, upbringing as a Christian, and, and possibly for you in, in, the, in the, the lessons that you have heard through Scripture, through your upbringing, may not have included this issue of justice and mercy with part of your discipleship. Well, mercy is the thing that we do every other Saturday, right? Like justice is the thing that we do that one week in January, I think it is. Well, that's what justice is. That's what mercy is. You know, it's interesting. If you take the character of God, right? God is loving. Amen? You guys know I'm setting you up. God, Jesus, God is just so loving. If we took God and placed him here, and then we said, okay, we're going to just t remove love from God. Oh, <gasps> gasp. We're going to remove love from God. We're just going to put love over here, separate it. We're just, well, well, that's no longer God, right? I mean, that's no longer God because God is love. And how could you separate love from God? I mean, everything that God does is motivated by his love for us. And, and that's just who he is. And his very essence is love. And, and just how can we remove love from the Lord? 
put God here. And we say, okay, well, I'm going to take this issue of justice. I'm going to put it here, and I'm just going to, we're only going to deal with this every other Saturday. We're only going to deal with this once a week. We're going to just form a separate committee with, like, you know, eight people who meet monthly, like, really good-hearted My question to you is, does this remain God if we remove justice? Can we remove justice from the character of God? The answer is no. But yet, in our discipleship, we are challenged completely. We say, I must be a loving person. I must love everybody in the world, everybody around me. Because that is who God is, and yet we do not demand the same thing about justice for our lives. And when we recognize that, when we really kind of dive into that and sort of till up the soil underneath all of that, you know, we read Isaiah 58, and it's like, is, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke and to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. I mean, isn't that what this is about? I mean, isn't that what you're missing in your life? How we evangelize is with mercy and with justice. In places that IJM works um, in the developing world, we, are, we face things like slavery and sex trafficking. Their current estimates are that there are 45 million enslaved children, women, and men throughout the world. 45 million. There are more slaves today than at any other time in our history. There's an estimated 18 million enslaved people in India alone. And all of this has been happening while we have been here, citizens of the earth, right? I mean, like, we're all sitting here in this world, and this is happening around us. We should, this should matter to us. We should not be able to sit by and just ignore those things. I hope that some of you, when Ben put up those teen suicide numbers in the U.K., like, that blew me back. Like, I'm going to go home and I'm going to pray for the teens and, and, and in, in the UK because that is not okay. That's not all right. And shame on me for not even knowing it. We have to include this issue of justice. We have to include this, this passion for mercy and justice, for reaching the lost in our evangelism. When you take a girl who is locked in a brothel in India and you say, well, how is this person going to receive the word of God? How is this person going to receive the gospel to be redeemed, to restored, to be saved, and to end up in heaven? How is that going to happen? It's not like you go into the brothel and like you... I don't know, pay for time and be like, here, let me share you the gospel, right? Because if that person is enslaved, if that person is, is trapped in sex trafficking 
or, or forced labor trafficking on a boat or in a brick factory or wherever, the first link in the redemptive chain is for that person to be set free. Right? And so we have to care about the justice issues in our communities and in our world. We have to care. Because like it says in James chapter 2, if the person comes to your door and you say, peace be with you, be warm and well fed, and yet do nothing for their physical needs, what good is it? Now, I know that sounds like my words. That's actually in the Bible. If you just say, peace be with you, be warm and well fed, and do nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Well, we better start caring about people with physical needs. We better start caring about girls in the UK with emotional needs. We better start caring about people throughout the world who have these needs. And so your evangelism must, our responsibility in evangelism is that we must care about this issue of justice. So, what can we do? What can we do? I'm going to leave you with three things. Um, look, listen, and live. Look, listen, and live. And, and the first thing I just wanted you to do is just, this is very, like, basic level. This is just want you to look around. Okay? Because, you know, there is that person that, that you work with that is suddenly not as talkative. And maybe, you know stops dressing nice and stops taking care of themselves and that person is hurting. And so just look around and see the people in your life, in your neighborhood, in your communities, in your workplaces, or in your homes that are hurting. Just look. Look around. And hopefully as you have a relationship with this person, you can start asking them questions. How's your marriage, Mr. Man at the bus stop, right? Start asking questions. But here's the thing. It's listening. Listening. Here's the thing. You can talk about the most fascinating thing, the, the, the thing that, that each person in your life likes to talk about the most, and that's themselves. <laughs> right? People love to talk about themselves. Now, it's sometimes shrouded in like, oh, no, 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 nothing about me. Right? But people ultimately... Their world revolves around themselves. And so if you ask them questions about themselves and you ask them to talk more about themselves, then that's something that you will have an opportunity to be able to listen into their lives. Well, yeah, my in-laws are actually, they're moving like 30 minutes away and so it's just causing a lot of stress on me and um, yeah, this is just, it's, it's hard. It's just... Man, they just need to find something to live for other than, you know, their son. You know, they're, you know, like this is this is this is troubling. Right? That's a that's a listening part for us to be able to enter in and sort of, oh man, yeah, that must be hard. Yeah, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna be ready to pray for you. I'll, I'll pray for you, you know. You say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I did not ask for prayer. No one in the world would say that. Maybe the maybe the Italian guy would say that. But if somebody's opening up their heart to you and just be like, yeah, you know, my mother just got, you know, she's like, we're worried about her diagnosis. Like, they found a lump. Da, da, da. I'm like, oh, man, like, I'll totally pray for you. Um, what's her name? Whoa! Back off, Christian! 
I didn't ask for prayer. They, well, you know what they would say? Oh, my God, thank you. Thank you. And then a week later, if you came back and you said, hey, I've been praying for your mother, mention her name, and then say, you know, I've been praying for Christine. Like, you know, how, 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 how is it going? Oh, my God, yes, thank you. You have no idea what that means to me, that you would remember and then you would follow up and, and you know, is there any other way that I can pray for you? How are you doing? Like, how are you holding up? You see how it opens doors, right? You don't go up to them and be like, I would like to pray for your mother. Please tell me her name. It starts with listening. Hey, how's it going? What's, what's, I'm going to give you a phrase that will help you in this because maybe you're not very good at this. Ready? If you, ready? Yes. Ready? Tell me more. That's it. That's all it is. Hey, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, yeah, I hung out with, uh, you know, my friend and, you know, we went, went hiking. Oh, yeah, yeah, tell me about that. You like hiking? Beautiful. Oh, my God. Yeah, I love hiking. You know, when I was in college, I went with this hiking. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, you went to Switzerland? Oh, my God, tell me about that. I've never been. Tell me about that. Oh, yeah, Switzerland. But I'll tell you what. If you go to Prague, Prague is, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's great. So what sites did you see there? We're like, oh, my God, this person loves me. And I'm not saying it's manipulation. I'm actually saying you actually begin to care about this person. It's amazing what you can do and the avenues that you can open and the, the doors you can open just by listening to people. And I think, uh, you know, Ben and I are in agreement. He's saying you need to verbalize. And what I think we're both understanding is that for too long, Christians have been about believe the gospel, believe the Bible, right? And just beating them over the head with it. And so all I'm saying is just open up the doors by listening to them and, and, and allowing the opportunity for you to speak into their life. You're not saying nothing. You're just like, oh, you know, hey, hey how's, how's it going? Oh, yeah, my mother has a diagnosis. And you'd be like. Right? No, you do that. You speak, right? You speak. You speak kind words. You speak the gospel. You speak the light of, of compassion into that person's life. Okay? So that's look and then listen. The third thing is, is to live. Okay, and if you could boil down evangelism into one thing, one picture, it would be this. What? Now, let me tell you a story. So, you know, I go, you know, to pick up my kid from school, and there was another father that was there of one of my daughter's friends, and uh, I hadn't seen him in a couple months, and I was like... Brian, dude, what's up? And he had, like, shed a ton of weight, and he was, like, looking really good. And I was like, dude, how you been? Well, I've been good, you know, Rangers hockey, blah, 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 you know, the whole thing, right? But, like, hey, dude, like, you, you look like you lost a ton of weight. Like, how did you do that? He's like, oh, yeah, 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 I did one of those, like, crazy shake diets, right? I'm like, really? Tell me more. And so he tells me about the shake diet and this and that. I'm like, you know, oh, yeah, so does it help with, you know, your, your exercise and, like, you have more energy, you know, blah, blah. And, oh, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more, right? And so what ends up happening is he, he tells me about this crazy shake diet. We pick up our daughters. We head back to our house. And um, do you know what happened? Yes, you do. I went home, and I Googled the crazy shake diet, and I took, I paid the money 
to the company for the crazy shake diet. Why? Because I saw someone who had a difference in their life and I asked them about it. That's evangelism, people. It's the crazy shake diet of Christianity. People need to see in your life, hey, there's something different about you. There's something that is different about how you live. How you, we both sat in that meeting. We both got yelled at by our boss, and I am reacting in a way that is totally different than you. What is, hey, how do you do that? Crazy shake diet. It's the gospel. Well, you know, I mean, ultimately, this job is my job. And, you know, I have other things that are more important than this job. And so what my boss thinks of me is not ultimately the, the be-all and end-all. Whoa. You see, you be different enough through the gospel transformation in your life that people will notice a difference in you. And guess what they'll do? They'll go up to you and ask you about it. And then you answer. So be crazy, shake, diet Christians out there in the world. And let people see a difference in you enough that they will say, hey, you're different. I see something different. I know it sounds ridiculous. I know it sounds like, well, nobody says that. I, I went to college with someone and that person, their freshman year, was not a, a Christian. And, you know, we went away for the summer, came back soft, her sophomore year, and she became a Christian. Came to all the church, you know, campus fellowship, stuff like this. And I was like, Candace, I got to ask, like, you're, you're, like, you're a Christian now. She's like, yeah, 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 I became a Christian over the summer. I'm fascinated. Like, we were all praying for you last year. Like, how did that happen? And she looked at me and she said, an alarm clock. Like, what? You like set an alarm? Like, how did that work? And she said, I went and visited my brother at his college. And um, my brother had become a Christian at school. I'm Candace, am not. And so I stayed with him for a weekend. And what ended up happening is that his roommates had dismantled his alarm clock and taken out the, you know, speaker. And so the next day, his alarm went off, but it didn't make any sound. So it didn't really go off. And so he overslept. And so because he overslept, he missed his class. And because he missed his class, he missed his test. Now, right? I mean, that's pretty infuriating. You jokesters, roommates of mine, have now just lowered my GPA in this university that I'm paying thousands of dollars for. And so Candace looked at her brother and saw all of this happen and thought, I know my brother. I know how he's going to react. And he's going to react like smoke out the ears and this and that. And he didn't. Brushed it off, said, okay, we'll deal with this with the professor, blah, 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 everything like that. And literally... She attributes that reaction to her conversion because she saw someone who was different 
and knew that he had become a Christian and said, there's something to this. Be different enough in your life that people will wonder what it is. And it's not going to happen this week. It may happen this week, but it doesn't necessarily happen this week or this month or this year. There are people that I went to high school with that I am still trying to fill up that Christian bucket. And it may not ever be me that has the conversation, but there may be a conversation that happens one day, 20 years from now. And they they look at that Christian bucket and they say, you know what? I remember a guy. Last thing I want to leave you with is 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. People see a difference. They ask you, be prepared to give an answer. But do this with gentleness and respect. Do it kind. Do it loving. Keeping a clear conscience so that, the, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. You know what that last part is? I could have cut that part of verse 7 out, but do you know what that part is? Listen, Christianity in today's postmodern world and in, in sort of this liberal world that we live in, Christianity doesn't always get a good rap, right? We're not always seen in the best light, okay? But you live such a good life and you treat people with kindly, with gentleness and respect and you talk about your faith in a way that is just loving and, and, and merciful and just. And you know what it says? Those people who have been like, oh, those Christians and, you know, those, it's probably online. You know, those Christians, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's like, but I do know Anne. And Anne's not one of those people. I mean, I actually will go on to Facebook posts of people that are ranting against Christianity. Like, one, you know, this one guy was just talking about pastors, and he was just like, all pastors are blah, blah, blah. You know, he's like a staunch atheist, like, all pastors, all Christians, and da, da, da. And I just wrote on a comment. I was just like, well, not everyone, right? And he was like, well, 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 yeah, no, not everyone, you know. But it's just the, the sort of just, I'm just going to put a little drop in that bucket just I don't know what's going to happen with that I don't know whether he's going to end up in heaven or whatever and and you know what but I'm just going to put a little drop in a bucket because people who slander Christianity are going to see Christianity different because of how you live because you've been on a crazy shake diet called Jesus transformation in your life and people see that and go wow that's different so why do we evangelize we evangelize because it's who we are it is our identity You are light of the world. Now, and where do we evangelize? We evangelize in our community because it is wherever we are. We are in Jerusalem, and so go to Jerusalem, and then go to Judea and Samaria, and then go to the ends of the earth. You're in Paramus. You're in Fort Lee. You're in Powell Park. Wherever it is, you evangelize there. And what is our responsibility? How do we evangelize? We evangelize with mercy and with justice, because it is often the first link in the redemptive chain. So look around this week, look around, and then start to listen. And as you live your life and love your friends, God will change them.